Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned into another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, my friend? Honored to have you listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. This is an interview from the archives. This originally broadcast on the radio. I was doing a series on the Eddie Davis New Orleans Jazz Band featuring Woody Allen. And I did this interview with Greg Cohen. He is the bassist in the group. I'm bringing all these interviews out there because I'm sad to say, and a lot of you already know this, Eddie Davis has passed away. And I just want to get these out there and heard if possible. As I said, Greg Cohen was the bassist with the Eddie Davis New Orleans Jazz Band with Woody Allen. Cohen is an artist known for not only his humbleness, but also his incredible knowledge of music. Born in Los Angeles, his love for music began early, and by 1978, he began working with the legendary singer-songwriter Tom Waits. In 1984, Cohen ended up in New York, where he currently lives. His work has ranged from producing, composing, arranging, and performing to the public. His bass playing has been featured on artists ranging from Elvis Costello, Willie Nelson, Keith Richards, Lou Reed, and Bob Dylan. His love for the many styles of music have led him to work with the great banjo legend Eddie Davis, who, as I mentioned, has passed away, as well as New Orleans jazz enthusiast Woody Allen, an association that continued for many, many years. I don't know what's going to happen to the band these days. I'm anxious to find out, but I hope they're able to continue performing. Greg Cohen also performs with avant-garde experimental artist John Zorn. He's performed with a variety of artists, and his bass playing has been heard all around the globe. It's interesting to note that Woody Allen is obviously a huge celebrity. The interview that got the most attention from people, I think it might be the interview here with Greg Cohen. I don't know why exactly. I know Tom Waits has a lot of fans, but I'm glad I got this chance to talk to him. Let me know what you think. I hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Leslie presents, and now your host, Paul Leslie. It is with great pleasure that we welcome bassist Greg Cohen. Thank you so much for making the time to do this from across the waters. Oh, you're welcome. So I was hoping you could tell us, kind of starting from the beginning, what got you interested in music? Originally, it was my mother. She played the classical guitar, and she's an artist. When us kids were put to bed at night, she would play the guitar for us, playing, you know, the masterworks of the Spanish guitar tradition. My brother and I, because of this, started to get an interest in playing the guitar. So both my brother and I started to fool around on the guitar at a young age. My brother ended up playing the guitar and singing, and two other boys on our block who were four years older than I decided they wanted to play the drums and the guitar. And the only thing really left was the bass guitar, which I didn't have one. So I ended up playing an old 50s Gibson with the top two strings taken off and tuned down uh, a fourth degree. And that was my first bass guitar. 
that was in 1959. And then I just kept on playing with my brother and these boys through the early 60s, you know, learning all the rhythm and blues songs of the day and writing original songs. And when I got into high school, I took up the double bass. And that sort of changed my whole musical universe. I started to play in the orchestra and the, the jazz band and started to get an appreciation for other kinds of music other than rock and roll, rhythm and blues, you know, stuff that I still love to listen to, but it wasn't as expanded of a palette musically as what I experienced in high school and then later in college. So what types of music? You mentioned that you started getting a varied, a more varied taste. What kind of things piqued your interest? Well, I remember when I first started playing the, the double bass, the first playing experience was in what they call concert band, which is a marching orchestra that's not allowed to march. It stays still. You know, it's a concert marching orchestra. They had a lot of great music that was written for these, what they call wind bands, or wind ensembles. And one of the uh, exceptions to being a wind player that you could you could still play in these groups if you were either a double bass player or a percussionist. So I played oftentimes tuba parts. Very often they had individual string bass parts. You know, actually the Mozart, the Vertimenti, and uh, many, many of the chamber pieces for winds. For years they thought CBV meant, or wasn't CB, it was actually something else in German, but they thought it meant contrabassoon, but it's actually double bass that a lot of these Mozart wind pieces were written for as well. The great English composers of about 100 years ago wrote some beautiful things, Gustav Holst, Ralph von Williams, and uh, many other composers of that genre. So I started to say, wow, this stuff sounds pretty good. You know, maybe it's not uh, uh, Elvis Presley, but it was all right for being in school and playing it. And then I got into the orchestra, and I discovered composers like Stravinsky, and I was more impressed by the modern composers at that time. But my ears just started to open up to different harmonies and melodies that I, I hadn't experienced in the rhythm and blues world. Can you remember a moment when you knew you were going to be a musician for life? You know, to be frank with you, I don't think I ever had a, a moment like that until I was already in, in that portion of my life. You know, it, I didn't have an awareness like something that just said, okay, I'm going to do this for life. In fact, many times in my life, even after I was, quote-unquote, a professional musician, I tried doing other things, trying to procure more steady income. You know, I, I thought for a minute I'd try jewelry making. I went into violin making, bow making in particular. And uh, I always did it concurrently with playing music. And I think there was an awareness when I was working in a, a violin shop in New York City, and I, I realized I couldn't really keep my customers happy when I was going out of town so often. You know, I couldn't repair their bows and repair their bows with the frequency that I needed to do. So I said to myself, self, I guess it's time to just say you're a touring musician and a recording musician and do this out of my home rather than an actual establishment. So maybe that was something like that first time, but it wasn't quite so defined as what you asked. You had a long-time association with a really, really interesting artist, Tom Waits, and you mm -hmm. you played on an album I really, really liked 
the uh, Mule Variations album. I was hoping you could tell us about your work with Mr. Waits. Well, I started working with Tom Waits in 1978, touring a record called Blue Valentine. He called me a year before in 77 to ask me to audition for his band. He called me in the middle of the night, about four in the morning, and I was asleep, like most people at that time. First, I thought it was a joke or something. I, I never heard him talk before, and I didn't quite understand why he was calling me, especially that time of the night. And then I sort of started to wake up, and he said he was trying to put together a band out of Los Angeles, where I was living at the time, and would I like to come and audition. And then about the time I finally woke up, he said, uh, oh, I, I'll, I'll call you in a couple of days. There I am awake, and he hangs up. A couple of days go by, no Tom. A couple of weeks go by, no Tom. A couple of months go by, no Tom. And about a year later, again in the middle of the night, he calls up and asks me if I'd like to audition for his band. And if I remembered him, and I said, oh, yeah, I remember you. I've been waiting for your call. <laughs> I ended up going down to the office of his manager where he rehearsed off Sunset Boulevard. And he was auditioning the whole band at the same time. And of course, he had no idea how to audition a band or whatever, so he just ended up hiring all the guys that were there, which was me and Johnny Thomasy, uh, Arthur Richards, and a guy named Herbert Hardesty. Herbert played with Fats Domino along with Lee Allen. They were the two tenor players at Fats Domino. Arthur Richards did a lot of country and rock gigs in the 60s around uh, L.A. and worked with Tom. And Johnny Thomasy was from New Orleans and it played with a lot of the great New Orleans musicians um, from that time period. And there was an excellent drummer, one of my favorite drummers. So it was just kind of one of those things where he decided that we would be the band and we went out on, on an 11 and a half week tour of one-nighters across the United States on a bus, an old uh, uh, Silver Eagle. And that was the beginning of it. Very interesting. So what brought you out to New York? Originally, it was to work with Tom on a piece that he had written, a theater piece called Frank's Wild Years. Tom had a manager at the time. They had originally wanted to do this as sort of like an off-Broadway theater piece. He'd written the music and the story. and So he said, Greg, uh, I want you to come out here to music direct and play in this thing. So I moved to New York, and then it never happened because his manager at the time, uh, Robert Wilson, was supposed to direct it, and she was worried that it would be too avant-garde and wouldn't fly in New York. So the whole thing sort of fell apart and maybe half a year later, uh, Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago ended up deciding to do it. I'd already moved out to New York and sort of didn't have a gig except for uh, I was working at the Blue uh, Note and the After Hours band with Ted Kirsten. And then eventually went to Chicago for three months to stage this production and then uh, record the uh, companion record after that. You played with some really amazing people. Is there one that sticks out in your mind that you're especially proud of? Um, I'm proud of all of them because they all form my musical consciousness. And I, I don't think 
I can think of one standout person. I mean, certain people were more of mentors to me than others. Kenny DeBurn, the great clarinetist. Teddy Edwards, the great saxophonist. They helped steer me in musical directions that um, I might not have gone otherwise. But everybody, really, that I've had the opportunity to work with has helped me in one way or another to be, you know, to form my musical awareness, to, to help to be a catalyst for what it is that I do now. Another musician, uh, he's more known in the motion picture world, but he is a musician. We've been talking with everyone in your band, the uh, Eddie Davis and Woody Allen New Orleans Jazz Band. It's a very, very interesting story, and I was hoping you could tell us how you became a part of that band. On this tour that I did with Tom Waits back in 78, on maybe uh, at least half of the concerts, we split the bill with a singer named Leon Redbone. Oh, yes. uh, He's actually Armenian, but he sort of does this whole down-home thing and, you know, Champagne Charlie and sing, sang, and played the guitar. He always would keep a small group of traditional jazz-type musicians with him. At the time, when we did this tour in 78, he had a banjo player with him at the time named Eddie Davis. That's how I got to know Eddie. Later, Johnny Thomasy from Tom's band went out with uh, Leon and a lot of people in the scene, you know, that sort of skirted between New Orleans rhythm and blues or funk or whatever you want to call it and traditional jazz. There's a lot of links there. So when I moved to New York, I called Eddie and I said, hey, I'm in town. If you hear of anything happening, give me a buzz. So it was through Eddie that I ended up starting to work in Michael's pub with Woody years ago. Now, what was your impression of, of Mr. Allen when you first met him? I didn't really have much impression because he's not the kind of guy that you hang out with. I mean, he's a very private individual. You don't just sit around and chew the cut with him. So it's more like when you're on the bandstand, you play the music, and then as soon as the last note finishes, he's gone. So the impressions were strictly musical, and I, you know, I hadn't heard anybody play the clarinet quite like that before. Later, I started to listen to some of the people that he admires, you know, um, the New Orleans School of Clarinet Playing, and I, I had a better awareness of where he was coming from. But at first, it was very different from the clarinet players that I had worked with in Los Angeles and then in New York. Later, upon examination, I realized, okay, this is where he's coming from, is this particular style of New Orleans clarinet playing. When someone goes out to see you perform, no matter who it is you're you're playing with or where where you are in the world, what is it that you hope that the listener gets out of the experience? I don't think I can say that I hope that the listener gets any one thing because everybody listens on a different level depending on what their experiences up to that moment are. Well, I'll give you an example. I was playing a gig in Knoxville, Tennessee with another person who's influenced me a lot, John Zorn. We've had a group for many years called Masada, which is a quartet with Dave Douglas and Joey Barron and myself and John. Some people would call it avant-garde. I just call it music, but nevertheless, it, it sort of is not uh, moon June croon type of stuff. We were playing in some old theater downtown Knoxville, 
we've gone out for some soul food before, and we're on the outskirts of Knoxville, and the, the waitress who served us seems interested that we're musicians, so we said, well, if you want to come to the concert tonight, come on down and bring a guest. So she said, oh, I would love to do that. And so we put her on the guest list, plus one, and she came with her boyfriend. And, uh, you know, of course, when I saw this, I was worried that it would be too weird for them uh, or they just think we were from outer space or something. <laughs> and I noticed she was there, and I was thinking, well, she probably doesn't understand the harmonies or the melodies or thinks this is, you know, I don't know what. I was thinking of it all in terms of music. Afterwards, she comes up to me and thanks us for the tickets. And she says, what was that instrument you were playing? And I said, well, it's a bass, ma'am. And she said, I thought so. He said it was an oboe. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole time we were playing, you know, I was thinking what they were thinking, you know, on a, on a musical level. And they were just trying to figure out what the instruments were. You know, it's like going to see a play or going to see, uh, going to an amusement park. Every, you know, one person's getting the thrill of their life on a roller coaster, another person's throwing up, you know. So it's, <laughs> it's always different depending on what your point of perspective is. For me, as a performer, as a musician, when I play, what I'm trying to do is make contact with as many people as I can. In other words, I can feel the audience when I'm reaching them or the part of the audience that's listening. The part that doesn't listen, you'll never reach. But if I can feel the connection with part of the audience, then I feel like uh, there's a, a dialogue or communication. Wow, very interesting. You mentioned before we did the interview that you were open to talking about anything about music. So kind of as a general question, what is it that you like about music? I like everything about music. I like that it's a language. For me, it's a tangible substance almost, you know, it's like eating food or looking at art or feeling water or anything. It's a, a real tangible thing for me. And when I listen or when I play or when I think about music, it's like a, the major DNA of my life. Sometimes even as a listener, when I go to hear something, I can't get away from that. I can't just listen to it frivolously or lightheartedly. I'm, I'm sitting there analyzing the structure or whatever. So it's it's very much a, um, like a DNA of, of who I am at this point. It's kind of almost like uh, the cells that power my, my existence, my soul.
Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Hosted, written, and produced by Paul Leslie. Intro theme song, Alexander's Ragtime Band. Written by Irving Berlin. Performed by Dan Barrett. Outro scatting G-Things. Improvised, performed, and produced by John Goodwin. Until next time. Goodbye.